Hello and welcome to the Good Time Sports Club. I'm OJ Borge. And I'm Rhea Hubble. Oh, she is. On the show today, <laughs> we are joined by a man who's earned an Olympic medal that is neither bronze, silver nor gold. What colour might it be? It's one of Canada's finest, Lawrence Lemieux. And we're joined by Sophie Cargill, the co-captain of Team GB's wheelchair basketball team. Plus, we'll, we'll get our rank on and rank our favourite shock winners of all time. And the reason for that will become apparent in the news. Which we shall do in just a second. But first, Raya, how has your week been in sport? How's your sporty week been? Uh, I was hoping you wouldn't ask me this because it's depressing. Um, my back has gone again. It's not. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely devastated because I've just spent six weeks recuperating and it was it was better and I was back on track. Power and like cycling back up, swimming back. Um, was just starting to run and on the turbo on a race tonight, my back just totally went and I'm pretty devastated. Um, there were tears. There was a call to the physio, there was massage, there was, you know, just general overall female dramatics along with a back spasm. It, it's, it's been, it's been terrible. How's your week in sport? Um, <laughs> I went, I'm, I'm doing the Second City Divide, which is an off-road cycle ride, which goes between Manchester and Birmingham next week. So I've been hammering yes. my cross bike around just to, um, just to get back into it and make sure everything's working. And I was going around some fields near me and it's actually near an old tip. And we were going through the woods and we'd found all these new trails and stuff like that. And there was, I was following a mate of mine who's a lot more technically proficient than I am on a bike. Many spent his entire summer riding mountain bikes. And I followed him through some trails and I sort of followed him down. And then there was a plank of wood that went across what looked like a septic pond stroke river. It almost looked like there was like a, a thick scum on top of it. He got across it fine. And you know when it gets into your brain, you're like, don't slip off it. Don't slip off it. OJ, don't slip off it. So I came down the hill. I'm already oh, no. panicking. Okay, don't slip off it, OJ. I spent so much time thinking about not slipping off it, I forgot to lift my wheel to actually get onto the bit of wood, smacked into the front of the wood, went straight over the handlebars. And I didn't just fall into the water. Oh. I went in head first head first into the water nice. so I sort of bounced out tried, how deep was the water well, I, I, not deep at all but it, it was horrible it was like a greeny goldy bronzy colour I mean I'm hoping I've got some sort of special powers from it so I leapt out of it at this water and he was like oh my god and I'm like stood there dripping it's on my if you go on my Instagram you'll see the picture I'm stood like dripping scum off my shoulders um, when I got home my in-laws were around the house you know that scene in Anchorman so you know the bit where he wears sex panther and they have to take him outside and hose him down and hit him with the elephant brush, the wire, the wire bristle brush? Basically, my wife would not let me in the house until I'd been hosed down by my father-in-law out the back <laughs> using the hose. So there you go. That's my week in sport. Um, and I managed to break my bike in the process. So in doing some training, the bike's now been in the bike shop, which is getting fixed ahead of me doing this, whatever it is, 500-kilometre ride next week. So exciting. Oh, well, best of luck. Exciting. Um, very exciting, yeah. I'm glad you've demucked. <laughs> yeah, good job we're not in the same place because I probably still hum a little bit. Although, yeah, as I said, I'm hoping that I get some form of um, special powers from it. Um, let's do the news. Pierre Gasly won the Italian Grand Prix from Carlos Sainz and Lance Stroll. He became the first Frenchman to win for 24 years. It also marked the first time in eight years that a Mercedes, Ferrari or Red Bull didn't take the podium. 
Mm, and that wasn't the only big news in Formula One. Four-time world champ Sebastian Vettel will join Lance Stroll in the newly formed Aston Martin racing team in 2021. Exciting big Formula news One news. Yeah, big, mm. big news. And it's good to see Aston Martin back in Formula One as well. Um, and UEFA Player of the Year, Lucy Bronze, is returning to Man City after three years playing for Olympic Lyonnais. But first, though, um, let's go with Raya, who caught up with sailing legend Lawrence Lemieux from his home in Canada. You are joining us from my place of birth, Canada. Whereabouts are you? I live at Lake Waterman, which is about 50 miles west of Edmonton, towards Jasper. Ah. Beautiful. So not only are you from my home, my home country, but you are in pretty close to ski country, which is my first love and sport. Well, I ski raced when I was a kid. Did you? We, we did a lot of competitions, but when you uh, weren't very highly ranked, you ended up skiing on dirt and gravel because the snow was all gone by the time you got a run in. I remember those days where you had bib number 264 and you would have to wait between 263 and 264 for them to shovel snow back into the rut yeah. before you could have your turn. So um, I can see why you decided to move on to sailing. Uh, well, it was a natural progression because uh, I, I, we had a summer cottage at Lake Wabaman, which is where I live now. And we'd just commute from the city. But my older brothers, I'm the youngest of eight kids, uh, they got into sailing. They just kind of moseyed on down to the yacht club and said, hey, does anyone need a crew? So they ended up sailing. And of course, uh, as a younger brother, you always do what your older brothers do. So I just wish they had been hockey players or uh, <laughs> tennis players. because You can make a bit of money doing those sports. But uh, oh, well, sailing's a wonderful, wonderful sport. It's a beautiful sport. You mentioned your brothers were the ones who got you into sailing. What was your first experience in sailing? When I was five years old, um, you know, my brothers would be out sailing. They'd come in, into shore. They'd tie their boat up onto the dock with the sails down. And uh, I'd keep bugging them, come on, take me for a ride, take me for a ride. And uh, one day, one of my older brothers just said, well, you go ahead, you take it. So that was, that was a green light unbeknownst to my parents or anyone else. So I went out and I rigged the boat and I went sailing by myself. And uh, of course I didn't weigh anything. So the first little puff of wind that came along, I capsized. And of course I didn't have a life jacket on or anything, but it was no big deal. I didn't care. I knew what to do. The boat floats on its side. You climb over, you stand on the centerboard and you ride it. I knew how to do that, but I wasn't big enough to do it. So my older brothers had to come out and rescue me. So, of course, my mother said, oh, well, you're grounded for the rest of the summer, <laughs> which lasted one day. You know, what's she going to do? She can't ground a kid at the, at the cottage at the summer. Age 16, with the small laser class boat strapped to his car's roof, Lawrence headed down to Los Angeles to take part in a sailing revolution, but in the larger fin class. There was a whole bunch of us at the same time, uh, a lot of American college sailors and whatnot who came out of college and jumped into the fin class who were smaller in stature, but were a lot more intuitive, a lot more tactical. They knew a lot more about sailing. In the old days, the, in the, a boat like the fin class, it was just whoever could grunt it out the longest, just go in a straight line, turn once and go into the mark. Whereas there's so many other things, the wind shifts, the waves, there's a lot of things that you have to 
uh, take into account. And so the younger generation of sailors that came in when I did all had a better perspective on how to win a race, not just go as fast as you can. So it was very, very competitive back then. Canada hosted the 1976 Olympics while young Lawrence was competing in the World Championships in Germany. I had just come from the Laser Worlds uh, in 1976 uh, in Kiel, Germany, where I finished eighth overall. It was my first world championship, my first time racing outside of the country. So I was pretty keen to get one of these fin boats for that was the Olympic class at the time. There was only one left, and I had to write letters to the, uh, it was called the Canadian Yachting Association at the time. Now it's called Sail Canada. I had to write them letters and say, look, I'd really like one of these boats. You know, can I have one? And after a long process, they said, yeah, we've got one left that's in a barn near Kingston and you can have it. So I went to pick up the boat and uh, there wasn't any fittings on it. it. It turned out it hadn't been used at the Olympics. And so it just had a big plastic bag full of parts and I had no idea how to put the boat together. But right after that was the U.S. Nationals in San Francisco. So it's kind of a funny story because I arrived um, and the boat still wasn't rigged and I really didn't know what I was doing. And I'm in the parking lot piecing it together while the race, everybody's out getting ready for the start of the first race. And I managed to get there with just seconds to spare and I came into the starting line, but the control line that holds my hiking strap came uncleated and I fell out of the boat. So now I'm being dragged behind the boat coming into the starting line on port having to give way to all the other boats and everybody's <laughs> screaming at me and yelling and I'm so embarrassed. So that, that evening we get in from the race and we're in the showers and I can hear some of the old guard, the old guys that have been in the class for years. They don't know I'm in the shower and I can hear them saying, you know, there's some people out on that race course. They shouldn't even be there with us. You know, they, they need to go learn how to sail first. And I know exactly who they're talking about. <laughs> I can, I can imagine when you are starting in a sport, um, you've started from grassroots, you are begging and pleading from Sail Canada or, or what, what it was called at the time. It's, I bet it's hard to get into a sport which uh, can be seen as quite elitist because of the finances involved to get in. How, how did you find competing professionally? Did you need sponsorship or was it, you know, begging and pleading to get kit? How did you progress? Well, that's, in the beginning, I, I would work construction in the winter here. So I'd work construction during the day and I was a waiter in a restaurant at night. And there was a time when I even had three jobs. After the restaurant job, I'd go watch parts fall out of an injection molding machine because they weren't stacking correctly when they came out. So they needed somebody to stand and watch the machine. But what they didn't realize is the real reason I was there is they had a machine shop. So I rigged up a cardboard system so the pieces falling out of the machine would automatically stack up and I didn't have to watch them. And then I would go use their machine shop to make parts for my boat. Now, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't know that, so don't tell anybody. Okay, that'll just anyway, be between uh, you, me, and everybody who's listening. Yeah. Okay. It was only about 45 years ago, so I, don't, I think they forgot about it. <laughs> there wasn't a lot of professionals in amateur sport back then you know everybody was balancing a career or going to school or whatever they had to do and in fact uh the group from north america we became more professional sooner than the europeans did and uh so we didn't have any money but um there was a whole bunch of us we all had vans and we lived in our vans so we would circle at the yacht club and there'd be, you know, probably a dozen of us sleeping in our vans and we'd all go out for dinner together. But it was, 
we didn't have any money. So dinner was more like trying to find a, a happy hour that had the cheapest food, <laughs> things like that. One thing that we used to make money on was uh, the best equipment at the time was made in North America. So um, Vanguard boats made the boats that everybody wanted. And so what we would do is we'd buy, we'd get a brand new boat, we'd go over to Europe and race. And if we did well, everybody, of course, everybody assumes it's your equipment, it's not you. So they would want to buy your boat. So we would sell the boat for a lot more than we paid for it and then go back home and <laughs> get another one. So we, we did a lot of that. You're, you're setting a trend because nowadays living in a van is there's actually a hashtag called van life. It, it's people's aspirations to convert <laughs> vans to be able to live in them. And you were doing it in order to get to oh, yeah. go for finance reasons, I'm sure. So f funding was self-funded, not through sponsorship. How did you get to the Olympics? And well, uh, the first one was 1980, but as you know, uh, we boycotted that one. That's so right. it was, uh, I actually, I named my boat just pissing in the wind that year because after all that training, we had nowhere to go. <laughs> so, uh, and uh, it was unfortunate that year. I actually, uh, I finished third at the world championship, but the two guys that beat me were both Americans. And, uh, and there's only one person per country allowed in the Olympics. So anyway, it was a, I was really on a upswing and, and hoping to do very well there, but we boycotted. So then the next Olympics, uh, 1984 in Los Angeles, uh, although I was sailing the Finn class boat, the, one of the other classes is called a star boat and it's a, a two man keel boat. And uh, I don't want to get into the, the whole story of it, but I ended up switching classes just before the Olympic trials and ended up qualifying to go to the Olympics in the star boat. So I, I went to LA in the, in the fin, in the star. Then I went right away after that, I went back to the fin class to the star is really expensive. You mentioned the money, in, uh, but uh, the single-handed classes are certainly a lot less expensive. The laser you can sail for, you know, you can buy a boat for six or seven thousand dollars and you're good to go. Um, but a star boat you can get up around eighty thousand dollars. You know, by the time you get all the equipment and the trailers, and you usually need two boats because you got to have one in Europe and one at home and things like that. Well, I just couldn't afford the star boat, so. Uh, you know, for the Olympics, I borrowed a boat, actually. I borrowed one off the guy who finished second at the U.S. trials. So I didn't need to buy one. Um, so I went back to the fin class right after that and ended up going to the Olympics in 1988 uh, in the fin class. That's right, in Seoul. Yes. Now, you had, you had a pretty amazing experience in Seoul. Probably not what you might have anticipated. Talk, talk me through what happened in Seoul. Well, uh, it's funny because, uh, as you know, there's always a pre-Olympics. So you go, you, you go to the test event. Well, at the test event in Seoul, the year before the Olympics, there was no wind at all. It was absolutely calm. In fact, the current was stronger than the wind. There's some funny stories about that, but it was just sometimes um, when the current's stronger than the wind, the mark you have to round is right in front of you and you can't get to it because you just keep getting washed down. So there's a lot of funny stories among the boys who were struggling to get around these marks. Anyway, uh, we anticipated it would be light air and for the Olympics. Well, it couldn't have been farther from the truth. It blew like crazy. It was really windy. And when you have current, 
a strong current. It flows between Korea and Japan. Uh, when the wind, when the current's going the opposite direction of the waves, the waves get really steep. So instead of having a nice smooth wave, you get really steep waves. And they can start breaking right out in the middle of the ocean without a, a reef or anything to make them break. And that's what was happening. The waves were so steep that uh, the boats would ride with just running right into them instead of riding up over them. So there was a lot of boats in trouble. The fin, uh, there's 10 classes at the Olympics. And each, in order to spread out all the boats, you can't have them all racing on the same race course. So they have uh, three or four different race courses depending on, on the logistics of the venue. We're racing, the fin class is racing on the same course as the boat called the 470. So what happened is uh, one of the boats from the 470 class was in trouble. So, uh, well, there was a lot in trouble, but the problem is the race course has, is kind of a defined area. And uh, I, had been winning, I had been winning the race I was in, but uh, the waves were so big that I couldn't see one of the marks and I kind of misjudged it and sailed a bit farther than I needed to. So I was in second place at the time, but we rounded the bottom mark, which means that's the mark that's downwind. And then we have to sail upwind. Uh, when I went around the mark, I saw that this 470 from Singapore was upside down and there was only one person on the boat. And I know it's a two person boat. So I'm wondering, well, where's the other guy? Um, and so I was trying to yell, do you need help? Do you need help? But there's so much noise, the, the sails are flapping and there's waves and wind and you can't hear anything. And they were about a, maybe a hundred meters away. Um, so I just decided, well, I've got to do something. And then I saw the other crew member bobbing in the water out off, kind of off the race course. And I figured, well, if I can't see a six foot high, four foot wide fluorescent orange marker in the water, I'm not gonna, nobody's gonna find this guy. He's gonna be lost at sea. He's just a, a head bobbing in the ocean. So I pulled out of my race and sailed over and grabbed them sort of as I was going by, grabbed them by the back of the life jacket and pulled them into my boat. But it's a single handed boat. There's only room for one person. And it's quite windy and wavy, as I said. So I'm wondering, well, now what do I do? So uh, I decided the best thing I could do is take him back to his boat because it's going to float. It'll, it'll be okay. And somebody will find the boat. They might not find him, but they'll find the boat. So I managed to sail him back to his boat, and it turned out that the skipper who was holding on the centerboard upside down on the boat, he had sliced his hand open and he was bleeding and it was kind of a mess. And the crew member I'd picked up, he, he had hurt his back somehow. I'm not sure what he did. Anyway, uh, I managed to get him onto his boat, and then the problem was they had lost their rudder. The rudder came off and they didn't, it, it was floating away somewhere. So I thought, well, maybe if I can find the rudder and give it back to them, they might be able to right their boat and continue and get into shore. So I started sailing upwind, and actually I found the rudder. So I, I, I was taking it back to them. Meanwhile, the uh, coaches and, and things like that aren't allowed on the race course. You have to stay outside the perimeters. But the problem was the Korean rescue boats were sort of a military boat that was um, – it has what you call a soft bottom. You've all seen these inflatable boats that you blow up. We call them ribs, but this one had no ribs. It was just a soft bottom. Well, the problem was, is without any kind of a keel or any way to stabilize the boat, they couldn't turn, they couldn't turn the boat into the wind. So these rescue boats, these Korean rescue boats are pretty much useless. So the race committee got on the radios and, and radioed and said, okay, all coaches here are not allowed to go out on the course and rescue people. Well, I'd been winning the race, so my coach was thinking, 
when he saw the, the next rounding of the marks, I wasn't there. So he, he knew something had happened. So he came onto the course looking for me. And uh, he found me just as I was giving the rudder back to this other boat, this uh, Singapore boat. So he took over the rescue and I just continued the race. So I ended up, I think I finished 23rd in the race or something after rescuing these guys. Lawrence, but. you're in the middle of an Olympic games. No matter how much of a good person you are, there is that inherent competitive spirit in all of us that wants to do well. Capsizing in sailing must happen on a regular basis. What what was it in that moment that made you decide to sacrifice your race to help someone else? Well, like I said, there was it's a two-person boat and there was only one person there. So right away the alarm bells go off. But when I saw the guy in the water, that was it. I mean, I I knew that he needed help. There was no way he could swim and catch up to the boat. The wind's blowing the boat a lot faster than he can swim. He's just getting farther and farther and farther away from it. At the time, he was probably, I don't know, maybe two or 300 meters away from the boat when I found him. Well, so he would have been lost at sea. Well, I mean, given the state of the injuries that you sort of found those sailors with um, and the sort of danger they were in, I think there's no argument that, you know, what you did was incredibly heroic and saved their lives. I mean, you had worked incredibly hard to get to the Olympics. Um, you know, you'd missed the first Olympics due to boycotting. Um, I mean, was there ever a moment that you maybe regretted not not finishing that race or not trying to compete and stay in second place to medal? Well, certainly not at the moment. Uh, at the moment, there was just no question about it. Uh, in hindsight, though, it became such a distraction. It was really hard to compete after that. Yeah. You know, you spend your whole life uh, training and competing and you want to get accolades for your results. And all of a sudden, I'm surrounded by reporters and everybody wants to talk. And it was just such a distraction. I remember leaving shore and actually giggling to myself, thinking how ironic it was that uh, you, you do all this work and then you get the, all this attention for something that's completely... Uh, not part of the program you know it was you don't expect to have to do something like that so it was a big distraction and i so in hindsight i think i could have finished better in the overall results uh without the distraction but i think i ended up 11th overall in the end when it was all over yeah well i think everyone understood that there was it's not just about how hard you work but when you sacrifice how hard you work the Olympic spirit that is shown from a performance like that, sacrificing your performance, not just in that particular race, like you said, all of the races subsequently that happened. Um, so you were indeed awarded the Pierre de Coubertin uh, medal. Um, I mean, how does it feel to be an elite group of identified athletes like that, not just um, awarded for your athleticism and your ability in the sport, but because of the true Olympic spirit that you have? Kind of feels pretty cool, I'm sure. Well, here we are, what is it, 35 years later, still talking about it. So I guess uh, I guess that speaks for itself. Uh, you know, as you know, medal winners come and go. And uh, I'm coaching right now. I coach the laser class for our Canadian team. And I'll mention names, you know, very uh, famous names from the past. And these kids have no idea who I'm talking about. So, it, you know, that's... You remember during the time of your uh, competition, but when the competition's over, nobody uh, nobody remembers you anymore unless you're Wayne Gretzky or Michael Jordan or something like that. But 
for us amateur athletes, the names are forgotten pretty quick. But uh, I guess this one just keeps going on and on. <laughs> the legend indeed lives on. Do you keep your medal close? Do you have it here? Not really. Uh, it wasn't really a medal. It was, a, it was just a little porcelain um, jar kind of a thing. Uh, no, actually, I don't really have much uh, around. <laughs> well, it was funny. There was one time uh, we were going away on a trip, so we packed all the sort of valuable memorabilia things into a package and put it in a box and hid it somewhere, and uh, it's still in hiding. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. This, it, it shows how humble you are when you put away all the keepsakes and just leave them there because they're probably best left there than keep bringing them back out again. <laughs> Well, many years ago, uh, I I left home. I, I, I owned a house at the time, and uh, I left, and I was actually ended up, I was gone for almost a year, and my neighbors were supposed to look after the house. But anyway, it got broken into, and uh, they stole a bunch of medals and things that I had. And uh, so it was kind of a warning for the future that you, know, you never know what's, what's going to happen, you know? Might as well hide it away. Yeah, definitely. Keep it safe for, you know, on that rainy day where you feel like you need a bit of a pick-me-up. Lawrence, uh, you've been amazing. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Well, it's nice to meet you and thank you for the interview. Uh, that's Raya there with Lawrence Lemieux from his home in Canada. And that medal that he won, um, as I was listening to that, I looked it up, the Pierre de Coubertin medal, which is the True Spirit of Sportsmanship medal. I mean... It's an amazing story, Raya. You're a competitor. You like winning. I mean, I'm a competitor as well. I never lose. I just sometimes yeah. haven't finished winning when time runs out. Um, <laughs> would you do the same? Would you give up? You know, you've spent four years training for something. You've got a medal in your sights, whether it be gold, silver or bronze. Would you give it up to help someone else who was in trouble? Well, that's exactly... I asked that exact question to him. I said, at what point did you decide to give up that silver medal and turn to help someone. And to be fair, he turned around and went, there, there, there was two people supposed to be in the boat. No two people were in the boat. They were getting shipped out to sea. And, you know, in, in that, I don't do, I didn't do a sport that was so dangerous that involved other people. I don't know. Like there's some, there's a part of me, that competitive Olympic spirit side of me that feels like I could probably focus and carry on. But as I've gotten older and hopefully a little bit more sensitive and compassionate <laughs> rather than just competitive, I would like to think I could be that person. But I think it takes a really special person to be able to get out of that focused mindset to, to do something good. I don't know. Would you do it? I don't know. I, I, I like you. I hope. I think I would. I think morally you have to. I yeah. think morally you have to. I think. But I, I honestly think. I honestly think. Did you hear that beep? Uh, I, I hope I would. I, I, but I, I bet that he has, and I think we all would. I think we'd all do the right thing and help one, help them out. But I think in the middle of the night, you know, you get hot elbows or you go, you're go, trying to go to sleep and you wake up and every mistake you've ever made in your entire life, you decide to play it out at two o'clock in the morning. You would have a moment of thinking, why didn't I leave them? Why didn't I go on to win that? Totally. I mean, if you look at it, though, over the years, there's been a lot of gold, silver and bronze medals given out of the Olympics. Hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of medals. They're not, you know, don't get me wrong, they're elite clubs, but there are lots of people around you can find who've won gold medals from every country on the planet. There, at this point, when he won his, there'd only been four people before him who'd won the Pierre de Coubertin medal. I mean, there's more now, but he was only the fifth. So you have to look at elite of elite clubs. And I mean, oh, I mean, if you were going to put something on your Tinder bio... 
you could put down, you know, <laughs> I own the Pierre de Coubertin medal. I mean, what a thing to put on it. Not saying I ever would put it on it, but, you know, if somebody said, oh, what's that? And you could go, well, I got this. I'm only one of, at this point, I was only one of five people ever to be so sporting, they gave me a medal. I was just going to say, we're going to wade in and show the difference between you and Lawrence Lemieux. Lawrence Lemieux had his in a packing case and he didn't know where it was and you'd be putting it on your Tinder by <laughs> Absolutely. I don't have Tinder and I've never been on Tinder, but if I was on Tinder, then I think it'd just be a picture of me and my medal. And I, it would be a conversation starter every single time. I'd be like, oh, what's your medal? Well, let me tell you over dinner is how that would start. That every and your second time. picture would be you and your dog. <laughs> Absolutely. I don't know. Have you ever Tinder dated, Raya? Oh yeah, there was there was a time where I I did attempt it. Oh, awful. What was your picture? What picture did you use as your profile picture? Th- there were there were many variations over the years, <laughs> and I, I've never had a dog in my profile picture. But I saw many men with their yeah. dogs and stroking tigers. So unacceptable. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh, hang on, you you dated Joe Exotic? Tell me more. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I saw I saw a great thing the other day, which was it was a tweet saying um, if all the people in their Tinder bios said they're into hiking, the trails would be fuller than they are. There'd be no room on the trails because apparently so that's true. what everyone puts. <laughs> so true. As I say, I've never Tinder dated and um, hopefully never will. But you never know. There's always time. Um, thank you very much again to Lawrence for taking the time to talk to us. It's a fantastic story. Really good story. Now, though, it's time to flip over to the world of wheelchair basketball with Team GB co-captain Sophie Carrigan. Let me ask, before we get on to sort of how your basketball career is now, were you sporty growing up as a kid? Oh yeah, I was really sporty. I I was, that was what I was naturally quite talented at. Um, the academic stuff did not come easy to me. So at school, I was definitely that, that kid that couldn't wait for the PE lessons. Even though I still managed to forget my kit like every single time, which still, still surprises me. <laughs> Um, but my mum, bless her, would always bring my kit in because that was the lesson that I just loved the most. Um, and I did everything after school, you know, netball, hockey, tennis, athletics. Um, drove my parents mad doing every extracurricular activity you can imagine. But really set me up like for obviously the life I have now. But um, I think I would have always pursued sport in some way, um, whether that, you know be professionally or not I think I always quite like the idea of being a PE teacher or something like that um, but obviously then life massively changed for me when I was 16. That's right you had just finished your GCSEs if I'm not mistaken and yeah. gone on a holiday to America back in 2010 is that right? Yeah that's right yeah so I've got family that live out there um, and I'd been the year before and just absolutely loved it like I think I, I just loved the American dream you know that um, I loved sport over there like it's just so different to what it is over here and um, that whole culture is massively driven by sport and I, I loved that I I was I just lapped it up um, and I you know I just wanted to spend more time there and luckily I had family that lived there so you know it was just a, a flight and then I'd get to stay with them for a few weeks. And what happened on that trip? Yeah obviously I stayed there for a lot longer than planned but not uh, in a holiday <laughs> I stayed because I was in hospital uh, so I had a, um, a car accident um, on the third day of my holiday absolutely gutted um, but I uh, yeah the guy driving just lost control of the car and, and went straight into a tree um at 60 miles an hour so it's 
you know, going quite fast and um, straight into something, stop dead, you know, and I, I had my seatbelt on, but actually my seatbelt caused a lot of my injuries. Um, if I hadn't have had it on, I'd have, you know, gone straight through the windscreen and, you know, probably been a lot worse off than I am now. So, uh, but yeah, I was rushed to hospital. Um, I wasn't alive at the time. I, my heart wasn't beating. I was, um, you know, in a lot of pain and things. I mean, I don't remember it, uh, thank God, I think. <laughs> um, but yeah, I was in, I went into hospital. I was, uh, had like life-saving surgery, quite a few of them. Um, and they really, doctors over in America are quite cocky about how good they are, which, you know, I love, I love that. Um, but they've said to me since, like, you came in with the most severe injuries that we've ever seen in a trauma situation. Um, and we really didn't know if we'd be able to save your life. Uh, so actually they left me open overnight so I'd had all this internal surgery and every bit of my org all my organs were damaged um but they'd operated on them all but left me open to sort of give me the best chance of survival um but thinking really that I wasn't going to make it through the night I did which is you know amazing in itself never mind the life I've been able to live now um but yeah I survived and then every day since then really I, I sort of you know, go through recovery, go through rehab and, and get to the place where I was, you know, starting to live what I called a, a normal sort of life, really. What were, um, what were the extent, for those who haven't heard the story, what were the extent of your injuries? What, what, what actually happened? Because it was, it was pretty significant. Yeah, it was. Yeah. So as I said, just, um, my organs were really badly damaged. I was, um, bleeding internally from my liver, which was the thing that was basically killing me. Um, so I had blood transfusions, a lot of my other organs were damaged and then repaired later on. Um, but obviously the lasting injury for me was breaking my back and my spinal cord. Uh, so that is now why I'm a permanent wheelchair user. Um, and, you know, that's a permanent injury. Um, but it's funny because, like, obviously I'm just telling the story and I don't mention that to begin with, which really people yeah. would think is the most important thing. Yeah. But actually during that time it was so insignificant because actually the internal injuries were you know the things that were stopping me um from being alive they were the things that were uh you know stopping me eat stopping me it were causing me so much pain so actually those things sort of overrode the fact about like breaking my back really if that makes sense yeah, it, it does. I mean, I I had a similar in, injury back in 2001 where I, again, broke my back. I was in a wheelchair for quite some time, but I hadn't severed my spinal cord. So not the same um, extreme injuries as you, but that going through um, hospital is very rarely about the broken back because they put you on traction or they operate. It's the it's the bruising of the internal organs and the injuries that you sustain that that stop you from being able to eat and therefore you do lose weight. And yeah. also something which I think is very close to your heart is the emotional recovery, the, the psychology behind how you yeah. go through something like that. Um, how long were you in hospital for and how did it affect you? What was the process of going from hospital bed to nearly dying um, mm. through to coming out the other side and deciding what you were going to do next yeah um massive journey really probably a, about a year I would say it took me to fully recover and sort of feel like myself again 
Um, but I was in hospital. I was in America for two months and I couldn't fly home because I'd punctured my lungs. So because of the air pressure, I'm sure my insurance company wanted me to get home as quick as possible, but wasn't able to. Um, and the care I had there was just phenomenal. It was amazing. Um, and then I was in hospital two months in the NHS. Again, like can't fault the care. You know, I was so well looked after. Um, and then I got discharged just before Christmas in 2010. So it was amazing to be able to have Christmas. Like, although it was different and my life was different, um, amazing to be back home just before Christmas. Um, and yeah, then after that, really, recovery is just, it's constant. You know, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm still in recovery, but you're always, you know, you're always dealing with challenges and barriers and things like that that come up that you've not experienced before. So to me, it's always evolving. Um, I, I tried to go back to school like pretty much straight away I was I thought oh, I'll just you know as soon as I get back from America I'll be back at school straight away and like with my old friends and my the same class and things like that but that didn't happen and I, I I went back just sort of once a week or something just to like have lunch with my friends really and do like a couple of lessons just to like get back into the swing of things um but yeah it was kind of a mad year really because it flies by um but then at the same time it's really slow because I was you know still so ill still so weak like like you said like all those other injuries affect so much more of your life like losing weight and I was like half the woman I am now back then because I just wasn't able to eat a lot so that recovery took longer um and like you said as well like psychology in the mind is something that I am really passionate about I think it just affects so much of your life um, mental health and things like that it's, it's just so important to be talking about and that for me was uh, definitely a, the struggle early on you know adapting to a new way of life um, and but honestly like I wouldn't be the person I am now without it's so cliche to say but friends and family around me that you know made me almost fake it to, to prove that I was fine and you know obviously they didn't make me do that I mean people being around me I was like I'm gonna just put on a brave face and I'm just gonna pretend for a while that I'm okay um and then everything will be you know everything then will be fine eventually um which it was luckily for me I'm not advising that to anyone like you know push your emotions down and not talk about them <laughs> obviously that's not advisable um <laughs> but for me it worked for a bit you know prioritizing their but but, but you have to but it's great to share how it worked for you, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Um, I had to prioritise other people because I think it's so much worse for parents, friends, to see someone going through that and not being able to, like, cure it almost, not being able to do anything to help. Um, so, yeah, I think that was sort of, like, my way of, of processing and way of, like, coping. Um, and, yeah, it's just the mind. I could talk about it all day. It's just so powerful, such a powerful tool um, that can help you overcome things and and obviously for me then sport became a massive part of my rehab as well because I didn't know anybody else with a disability um I went on a like a, a spinal injuries uh they do like a session at St Mandeville which obviously the home of the Paralympics yeah so those little bit that was about six seven months yeah. after the accident um, all little bits of inspiration that were happening around this time and made me realize sport was a was definitely missing and it, it was a big part of my life um, and when I joined the wheelchair basketball group was when I started to meet different people with disabilities and start to sort of embed myself into that society which and that community which 
to begin with, like being really honest, I was really against. I thought, you know, I just want to be in my bubble, in, you know, stay with my friends, everyone who I knew. And that's such a process of, um, it's a mental recovery process is I'm, I'm a different identity now. I can identify with different people. Um, and sort of starting sport and getting into that made me come to terms with um, probably accepting my disability a lot more. Yeah. Not only did you accept it, but you then embraced it by understanding you miss sport, but needing to do it in a new functional way um, to adapt um, to this new way of life. Um, was Did you t decide that basketball was your thing because it was around the corner from your house or did you have a pre-existing love for it? How did you get into basketball? Basketball. No, not at all. I, I'd never played basketball before, you know, being able-bodied. I mean, we'd messed about in the school gym or something playing it, but never properly, never played a game in my life. Didn't know the rules. Um, and, uh, so, yeah, it just happened to be that um, I'd gone on a course, uh, they're called the Backup Trust, who are an amazing charity that help people with spinal cord injuries. And I went on like an Outward Bounds like course in the Lake District, and it just changed me completely. It, just made, it made me who I'm meant to be, if that makes sense. Got me back to the old Sophie, you know, pre-accident. Um, and it made me realize that I've got this competitive spirit, like I wanna be the best at everything. Um, and it just made me realize that again. So I just looked at like local disability sports um, and this happened to be basketball was like 10 minutes from where I was living at the time. Um, and I think I was drawn to it because it's a team sport. I'd done a, I played a lot of team sport growing up uh, and I just went along. I mean, honestly, I was terrible to start with, like really bad. I think it's hard that people don't realize that pushing a chair as well as dribbling, shooting, passing, catching is really hard. Like you run quite innately and then the other things are the things you think about. But actually, the whole wheelchair thing was so alien to me that that was what I was thinking about more rather than trying to like pass and catch and the skills that I, I had. Um, thankfully, I just kept going back because I was really determined and it's quite a, some people call it stubborn, but uh, <laughs> I'm determined. And I just kept going back and thankfully got better at it. Um, but it took a while. And yeah, I yeah. think it was a lesson in don't give up, I suppose. Definitely. I also prefer um, the word uh, of determined than stubborn as well, because um, they're pretty much the same thing. Um, determined you were. You um, have become a bit of a superstar at wheelchair basketball now. Let's talk about your career today. What have you, what's happened? Where have you gone? What have you done? It's been a, it's been a whirlwind, honestly. Because um, as I say, like in 2011, when I started, I was really terrible. So it was a quick succession to into the GB squad. Um, and obviously the London games were happening. And again, a bit of a cliche, I was definitely inspired by that. I, I didn't compete there, but I went to watch and I was involved in like the Paralympic Inspiration Programme. And we got to do a bit of like behind the scenes stuff, which was really cool. And I remember watching the girls play their quarterfinal against Germany um, and they lost. And it was just like that memory sticks with me so vividly because they were all really upset after the game, obviously. And the crowd was just electric, like throughout the whole game. It was just like, oh, it was just on fire. Like it felt just amazing. I wasn't even playing. And I was like, that's what I want to do. Like I want to be on court when they next play Germany and I want to beat them. And I want to be part of that team, like to help them be successful. 
still at this point, probably not really knowing a clue what I was really doing. You know, I sort of was winging it for a lot of my probably first year of my career in just like getting used to the sport and playing at that such a high level. Um, and then it just sort of, as I said, to begin with, made every decision possible to make that dream a reality. So the team um, were then going to be centralised and that happened in Worcester. Um, so I chose to go there and do my degree, which meant I could be a full-time athlete as well. Um, so we were training pretty much Monday to Friday. Um, we train at seven o'clock every morning and then we do a couple of other sessions throughout the day. Um, and so I did not have the student life that you may expect, um, where my friends were getting in at six o'clock every morning and I was going out at six o'clock every morning. Um, but I wouldn't change it for the world. You know, I've got such amazing experiences um, because of that. Um, obviously the Rio Paralympics being my first Paralympics and being selected for that team and then also uh, co-captaining the team as well was just an absolute honour. Um, one of the best experiences of my life today is waking up every morning and I literally could see the Olympic Park out of my bedroom window in Rio and that's just like a childhood dream. Like I used to watch the Olympics thinking what sport can I do that's going to get me there? And, you know, obviously my life took a different path and it ended up being the Paralympics, but equally as amazing. And, you know, so what that it took a massive accident that's, you know, pretty traumatic to lead me there, because that's what's important is what I'm doing in the career and, and the level that we get to do it at. Yeah, so that was obviously one of the highlights. Apart from missing out on a medal, we came fourth, um, which I think was probably about right for us at the time. Um, but you know it's that bittersweet feeling of we were successful because we made a semi-final and we'd never done that before as a team but then we also missed out so it was yeah but pretty bittersweet um but then really we went from strength to strength we we had um some funding increased which really helped our program and um, we moved up to sheffield which we had um, different facilities you know we were based out of an English Institute of Sport which helps with physio SNC you know all that support around the, the sport itself um, and yeah just went from strength to strength and in the world championships in 2018 we'd come from a nine game losing streak like don't ask me how this <laughs> happened um, but we went into that tournament having lost nine times on the trot uh, and uh, we lost out to the Dutch in the final um, but we just came together as a team and it was just like, it just felt, I think when athletes talk about like being in the zone and like talk about flow, that's definitely what it felt like that tournament. Um, just, we were all together. We were all on the same page. We all knew what we wanted and we went out and got it and to be on a world podium. Exactly. Determined, persistent, but also hungry for more, you know, fourth at the Olympics Things like coming silver after a nine um, and getting to the finals after a nine game losing streak. These sorts of things I'm sure have left you guys so much more passionate, so much more hungry to develop as a team, but also as personal skills. So 2021 um, now because of COVID is your focus, I presume. Absolutely. Yeah. Hunger. You talk about like, that's what I have. Like Paralymp a Paralympic medal is the one that we don't have at the moment. Um, and it's definitely the thing that we're chasing. So we've all been keeping our heads down, you know, working hard through lockdown and um, making the most of the situation because, you know, you've got to turn it into a positive because if not, it can 
you know, it gets a bit ugly. Um, so we're back on court now, which is great. Like uh, our team, British Wheelchair Basketball, have done a great job in making sure we're back on court safely. Um, and hopefully things just progress and, uh, and you know, we'll be uh, back competing soon, which is ultimately what I enjoy doing. Don't get me wrong, like going out and shooting on an outdoor court, it can be fun for about half an hour. But really my, my passion is to play with other people. And also we live in the UK. So now that it's September, we have exactly 14 more days before it is categorically unacceptable to play outside. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We've had some <laughs> days like that in July and June, you know, where it's, you, you, it's not okay to go outside. It doesn't make sense this weather. Um, I can only imagine that setting your sights for a Paralympic medal in 2021 is the ultimate goal because I believe that the future of wheelchair basketball post 2021 is potentially in jeopardy. What they've done is the IPC have had rules in place I think, I think since 2015 was when they started talking about the new changes they were making um, and I think they came in place in 2017. Um, so the IPC are the Paralympic Committee and then IWBF is the wheelchair basketball sort of federation that looks after our sport on its own. Um, so, and these classification rules at the moment, or pre-Tokyo, when it was meant to be, didn't align. Um, so IWBF were allowing people with minimal disabilities to compete. Um, and the IPC were saying, you need to have one of these disabilities in this box of 10, um, I think it is, uh, that if you don't have one of these, you're ineligible to compete, um, which is difficult because obviously there needs to be some sort of classification process in place because it needs to be fair. Um, but it's sad because wheelchair basketball has always been such an inclusive sport. And I think that's why our federation has really tried to persist in keeping their rules the same and challenge the IPC. Um, but unfortunately, they've not been able to do that as of yet. Um, and they've had to align their rules to the IPC's rules. Um, but it's just such a shame because you miss out on, um, you know, people with disabilities who are registered disabled uh, being able to compete in the sport. And it's just, it's a shame. It makes me sad because obviously I get so much enjoyment from the sport. And I know other people do that play and now have been told they're ineligible. Uh, for me, my thought process has always been if you can't play the able-bodied version of the sport, you should be able to play the disability version, you know. It's, it's, in, it's irrelevant if it's to go to a Paralympics really or to go to, a, you know, to play at your club. You need to see people who look like you doing those things at the highest level to be able to aspire to be like those people. Um, and that's what I think we're going to miss out on. We're going to, we're going to, probably isolate a lot of people who then don't fit into any category it's like well I can't play the disability version and I can't play the able-bodied version because I can't run um I can't even walk you know so I just worry for even grassroots never mind just the Paralympics you know because it's got the Paralympics is a massive motivator for people to play sport um, and if people aren't seeing other people like them I, I worry for the longevity of the sport um and you know the amount of people playing i i recently saw um a really um very emotional but very very fair um statement that you made on instagram about this and it, it, those sorts of things where 
making sure that inclusion matters. I, I love that you're promoting that. So thank you. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's what it takes, you know, people to talk about it. It's a difficult subject, of course, and you're going up against people who are, you know, big companies probably. Um, but it's important that people speak up. It's like everything in life. There's so much going on that people need to be educated on. And this is just another one of those, those areas. Sophie, I think you're incredible. We made it through the interview with me not crying. Yay! <laughs> um, I wish you and the team all the best for Tokyo in 2021 and also for all the hard work that you clearly need to do for um, wheelchair basketball in the future. Sophie, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. It's been really great to talk. Oh, Raya, she sounds amazing. Absolutely amazing. And you said at the beginning you weren't going to get emotional during that interview, and you didn't. No, I didn't. I didn't. I, I did just after we stopped pressing record because I was just, I, I had been thanking her for how much I enjoyed interviewing her and, and how she's recovered. And that got me emotional because obviously I, I've sort of, I've, I'd been through a, a quite a similar accident or a similar experience to her, um, but obviously recovered really differently. And so mentally, I, I, I struggle to understand the concept of, of how she's grown as an individual. I just, I, it's, for me, it's incredible. Yeah. It's one of those stories and you hear them all the time. If, if something like that happens to you, I, or happens to me, I hope I have the, 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 the personal fiber is not the way of putting it. I hope I have the moral fi I don't know how to put it I hope I'm as good as her if something like that befalls yeah. me I hope I can deal with it in the way that she did uh, that's yeah. honestly I mean obviously I hope it doesn't but if it did I hope I could deal with it the same way she can yeah. now last week we did um, a whole load of comebackability these are people who'd come back from their careers and been successful and we worked out their comebackability rating Mr Mark Payne Captain Payne what are we doing this week uh, this week we're doing uh, unlikely winners, following on from Pierre Gasly's emotional win at Monza. We just thought we'd go through the people that nobody really expected to win, who turned up to an event and absolutely caned it. So I thought I'd go through and uh, start at the top with possibly the most famous upset in boxing ever, James Buster Douglas beating Mike Tyson in Tokyo. Mm. Um, obviously at this time Mike Tyson was undefeated. Um, I think you could get shots of 42 to 1, which bearing in mind there's only two people in the ring at any point is incredible for Doug, uh, Buster Douglas to win. And also, the betting was not on whether he would win, but on what round he would get knocked out in. So, uh, who have you got for that? Yeah, I mean, you gotta, you got to look at that, haven't you? If you're Buster Douglas at this moment, what your confidence is like, what your confidence is like when people are betting on what round you're going to get knocked out in. There was another, there was a fight in the UK as well where somebody who was so expected to get knocked out, the sun sponsored the soles of their shoes because at some point it was going to be laying on his back. I can't remember who it was. Um, the thing is though, so Buster Douglas in this fight, he amazingly won it. Was it a knockout he won it by? Did he did he knock Tyson out? Yeah, so he was leading on the cards and then he knocked him out. I mean, there was it, it's incredible when you watch it because you think heavyweight boxing, you can always get knocked out. But if you watch the fight, he's on top for most of it. And then he knocks Tyson out after being knocked down himself. It's you remarkable. Know, there, there comes a point where actually I think PR and publicity plays so much to your favor because he had nothing to lose, nothing. Everyone expected him to fail miserably. So all he had to do was go out with zero expectations and do what he did best, which is box. And 
also the mental ability to sort of forget that you're fighting Mike Tyson. It, I, I, that's the bit I love about it. Nothing to lose and just go out and give it everything. I mean, I love it as well. I would say, though, at the time, I mean, I, I'm slightly busking it here because I don't totally know, but having known Mike Tyson's life and the wild man image that he did and how young he was and the lack of Gustamato in his life when Gustamato passed away. And, I, you know, as I say, I'm busking it, so I might not have my timelines here. Do you think it was, though, that less that Buster Douglas managed to beat Mike Tyson, that Mike Tyson beat himself? Because there was the Lennox Lewis loss. Lennox Lewis lost to... Hasim Rackman. Hasim Rackman. But... But Lennox Lewis beat himself. You know, Lennox Lewis said himself that that's the reason he lost that fight. So do we think that uh, less that it's an unlikely winner, more that Mike Tyson beat himself because he was just living this non-frugal non lifestyle? He was you know, hammering it, basically. Without a doubt, that can absolutely play um, an impact in, in, in a fight like this or, or the outcome of a game. Um, for sure, I mean, I, I, the amount of times where I've turned around and said, uh, you know, I lost that race. It was, it was, it was everything for me to lose, and I psyched myself out, or whatever it may be. Um, but then, at the same time, the person who was fighting against you in the ring took that to their advantage and were able to capitalize on it. So, yes, I think there's a, a huge argument for that. But good on James for taking advantage. Good on him. What are we rating it out of ten? Then give me your rating. I'm gonna go for a seven. Okay. Uh, okay, Mr. Payne, let's go on to the next one. And I believe we're going speed skating. Indeed. Now, you might have seen this story um, when it happened. It was one of the most remarkable things that has ever happened in winter sport. Uh, if only for the fact that a man from Australia won a speed skating medal. But that's not half the story. Uh, the fact that he got through to the, to the final because everybody around him kept crashing, that's not half the story. The bit that often doesn't get told with Stephen Bradbury winning an Olympic gold medal in 2002 is that he was an elite speed skater once upon a time. He had two horrific injuries. He once had his leg cut by a fellow competitor speed skate so badly that he needed 111 stitches, lost four litres of blood, tore all the muscles in one part of his thigh and had 18 months on the sidelines. He broke his neck in a training accident and was basically considered to be completely finished. Then came... was, he, was he taking part in speed skating or was he part of the running man with Arnold Schwarzenegger? Because those sort of injuries, I mean, like, we're, hard, we're not far away from climbing for dollars with that sort of... I know yeah. it is! I mean, don't get me wrong, if people were running around with, with, with lethal weapons on their feet, it's the sort of thing I might watch as a film, but my God! Anyway, sorry, Mark. Just before, you know, on lethal weapons, just before he was about to say he was too old for this, he came back and in one more event and he, he literally got to the final because he had this tactic from the semis. He realised he wasn't quick enough to get into the top two and qualify. He hung back and waited for the chaos to unfold to the point where in the final he was hanging back expecting to get a bronze and the front three took each other out and he has this incredible look on his face like, I've won! Like, he oh. can't believe it. Steve okay, so I've got an analogy for that. So that's basically like playing Mario Kart, <laughs> letting everyone red shell each other up front and then just toodling through to take the win. Is that what you're saying? Pretty much, yeah. That's in how Australia, I take Mario Kart. <laughs> I was going to say, in Australia, the, the fact that he did this, and it's such a unique event, like you can't think of many other examples of someone doing this. It's called doing a Bradbury. 
I love it. Brilliant. I, I feel in some ways, I feel in some ways, my entire career has been based on doing a Bradbury. <laughs> where I've never really been up the front, battling out for the big honours. I've just pootled along at the back, and <laughs> I've just cleaned, I've just, I've cleaned up the scraps, and I seem to still be here. Uh, I love it. Ten out of ten. I'm all for Bradbury. Um, the fact that he has a saying like doing a Bradbury, I'm right there with you. It's got to be a nine, nine yeah. and a half, ten. <laughs> Who are we going to next, Mark? Okay, so if you're going to go from unexpected winners, and then we're going to look at someone that fought someone even more dominant than Mike Tyson at his prime, right? This is a, the story of Alexa, sorry, Alexander Carolyn. Now, I didn't know Alexander Carolyn was until I started researching into this. Um, it's kind of hard to find anyone that was more dominant in any sport at any time in history than him. He came into the Sydney Olympics on the back of 887 fights, of which he'd won 886. He'd won nine straight world championships, three straight Olympic golds. He'd won 10 straight Olympic champions. He had been undefeated for 13 years and hadn't conceded a single point in six. So it's fair to say he was an overwhelming favorite when he came to the Olympic final. He was fighting, and I love this, a man from Wyoming who grew up and trained by wrestling cows. Literally what he did, right? Uh, the guy, Carolyn had a PhD in defending the suplex. Not a joke, he literally had a PhD in defending the suplex. He's up against a fat guy from America who wrestled cows. And amazingly, the fat guy won. Um, purely because basically he just, Carolyn just couldn't lift him, he couldn't flip him, he couldn't move him, and it, it was incredible. Is this, hang on, are you doing the plot to Rocky Three here? <laughs> Is that what you're doing? So you've got behemoth Russian um, taking on a guy who's wrestling cows. I mean, what a great story. I mean, it sounds great. I've never heard of either of these people. Neither but have what I. an amazing, unlikely winner. Well done, Rulon Gardner. I can imagine the end of a movie when... You know, you're doing this life story of this incredible wrestler and the end is this just finish where he can't pick the guy up and it just finishes there. It's like almost the most depressing anticlimax you could ever have. Yeah, I mean, there's there's so much more to that story. I mean, we've told like the fact that that is incredible enough in itself, but the more digging I did into it, the more incredible it got. Like he. He won the Atlanta Olympics with one arm because he dislocated a shoulder. He was that dominant, he could win with one arm. Um, the fact that after that fight, he retired by leaving his shoes on the mat and then came back and, uh, and you know, Carolyn was there when Rulon Gardner retired when he did exactly the same thing, left his shoes on the mat as a seven. And then incredibly, so Rulon Gardner does the talking circuit and then shortly afterwards has, he's like basically lives out final destination, had a snowmobile crash into a lake in Utah and was left alone, lost a toe, had to be rescued and then crashed a plane into a lake. So, I mean, and he's still going. What? Amazing. Well done, everyone. I'm going to give that a nine out of 10, just for the sheer leaving your shoes on the madness of it all. Yeah. Wrestling cows. Yeah. Yeah, nine for me, but only because the story just doesn't seem plausible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, make a film out of it. I'd watch it. Yeah, I'd me watch too. it. <laughs> well, the Where next we? one, I was going to say, the next one, I think they are actually turning this into a film. So if you don't know this story, um, if you don't follow American football, it's just started again, I'd recommend getting another ground floor and watching it from the start because it's one of the best sports to watch for storylines. I don't think in the great history of the NFL they've had a better storyline than the 1999 St. Louis Rams. 
Um, they came into the season as the big underdogs, hadn't won a title since 1951, uh, which was 16 years before the very first Super Bowl, hadn't had a winning season for a decade. The last four seasons they'd won progressively less and less games and then they thought they'd solve the problem. They get this expensive quarterback who's going to solve all their problems. First preseason game they play, he dislocates his knee, season's over. They have to look onto their backup and it's a guy who's 28, he's bounced around the league, he's spent time working a night shift stacking shelves in a local supermarket, he's played indoor football, he's played in Europe in a lesser league. A guy called Kurt Warner who ended up becoming the league MVP, winning the Super Bowl, going to the Hall of Fame, doing, nearly doing the same again 15 years later when he was at the end of his career. It was an extraordinary like performance and one of the greatest comeback stories of all time. Interesting. It is interesting that. And I do like American football. I'm a fan of American football. The reason that I am tempted to not give this a high mark on unlikely winners is to do with the draft system in America. Now, I believe this has happened a couple of times recently where teams intentionally, if they look like they're doing badly in a season, will just have a one bad season. It's got a name. I can't remember what the name is. Is it called tanking the season? Yeah, tanking the season. Because that means the next season you will be first pick on a load of drafts and you can basically rebuild your team. So rather than have a mediocre season, have a terrible season. So I would think that ability for teams in American football, or in fact any American sport where you have a draft system, the ability to have a terrible season to then be followed by a great season is fairly high. I'm not saying this is not a great story because everything around it with Kurt Warner and the rest of it, I'm just saying I'm not sure I rate it as highly as the other unlikely winners. Raya. Yeah, I, I tend to agree, especially sports that are North American focused or central. You've got that, um, one, there's a huge amount of politics. Two, there's a huge amount of strategy at play. But three, there's just so much money involved so much money involved that um, it sometimes takes away from the incredible stories and NFL has seen some incredible stories incredible stories and, and I guess I can see why this would be turned into a film because you go from stacking supermarket shelves to being the MVP um, of the entire league and Super Bowl so I can see how it works but I can totally understand your gripe but ice hockey is the same um, and yeah Less a gripe, less a gripe, more it's just I'm looking at it through that prism. The other thing is, they only play about eight games a year. When you look at the American football season, it's insanely short. That's insanely because, short. That is because the games last so long, because there's so many oh. timeouts, that it's like nine innings of baseball for a 90-minute game. That's why. It's crazy. It's I crazy. I would say, in defense of the NFL, the guys, it's such a brutal sport. They're so oh, much bigger. And it's just the impact. If they played a 38-game season, they'd have one player left at the end. I, of well, yes. I, I'm not saying I'm not saying that. But what I'm the point I was trying to make, I'm just trying to put mitigating factors again. So we don't give all of these unlikely winners like 10 out of 10. Uh, the mitigating factors would be, um, if you had to play a 30-game season and you had to get lucky in each one of these games, it'd be very difficult to do it over 30 games. To do it over, what's an NFL season, including uh, postseason? 19 games, it would be. 19 games. 19 games. You, know, you can get hot. You can, you can flute 19 games. It's fine. Do you know, I'm going to give it a seven, just because of the aforementioned factors. But yeah, it's still a great story, but a seven for me. I'm going to give it an eight because I love that, the, the feel-good supermarket stacking shelf to MVP. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, it's the American, it's the American dream wrapped up. Exactly. Everyone, isn't it? 
Uh, and let's have one more. Have, I was going to say the rights have been bought by Disney, so we'll hear it soon. So oh, God, what? So it's. Hang on a second here. There's going to be a genie and a lamp. There's going to be a talking tiger. I'm in. I, I've changed my mind. 11 out of 10. <laughs> okay, so now uh, I, there's, there's going to be a whole list more on the website, so I'm, I'm tossing up which one I go to next. But it seems obvious to me that we're going to go for one that's slightly different. I know we did tennis last week with Monica Sellers and her comeback. We're going to do unlikely winners, and it's Goran Ivanišević. Now, Goran Ivanišević, if you hear the name and you look at his record, you think it's not that surprising that he won Wimbledon. He was a successful player in the 90s. He looked like he was going to, you know, his destiny was going to be there. He played in an era, though, where he had the likes of Andre Agassi and Pete Sampras, who were just unbeatable at their top. And... He got to the point in 98 where he basically just emotionally lost it on the court. He lost the, his third Wimbledon final um, uh, to Pete Sampras. And he said, he described it as literally the worst moment on my, of my life. Collapsed on the court in tears. He, he whole career fell apart. His life fell apart. Three years later in 2001, uh, he's not made it to a single Grand Slam for, for the rest of the year. This is the third one. He's not got past the quarterfinals since that that final. He's he's just completely bereft. Fallen to number 125 in the world rankings, which means he's no longer entitled to an automatic spot. Wimbledon take pity on him, give him a space. He then goes and beats three future number ones, the fastest man in serving on the planet, and Tim Henman, who at the time was you know had huge home advantage in the semi-finals, and then goes and beats Pat Rafter in the final for possibly the most emotional comeback ever ever seen. Raya. Um, I really feel for tennis players because not only is it a game watched by so many people around the world, but it is you and one other player in a stadium full of people. The pressure that tennis players are under is like a microscope. And also, I feel like their lives are quite well documented, more so than a lot of other sort of athletes out there, um, particularly in the UK where we live. So I can, I really resonate with that pressure and the sort of careers going to pot, but, um, or, or because of the pressure that they're under and having to compete against the likes of Agassi and, and Sampras who were, like you said, totally unbeatable. Um, it is an amazing journey, but he had it. I, I sort of feel like he always had it in him somewhere. Like you said, he'd, he'd had an incredible career. Um, so it was a comeback rather than a win. In, in, yes, in my exactly. That I, th I think he almost could have made last week's list rather than this one. Um, I, you know, I remember this. For me, this was the heyday of, of me watching tennis. And like a lot of people, there are certain events which transcend the sport. So if you're not into the sport, you will like it. Anyway, for instance, the Tour de France um, transcends cycling because people watch it. If you're not into, into cycling, the, uh, the Super Bowl transcends American football. I remember watching this year and I was very much into his story and I loved it. And even though I'm British, I don't tend to be particularly jingo jingoistic. I liked Henman, but I didn't, you know, wasn't necessarily that I wanted him to win. I loved how into it he was. I loved the drama. For me, it was the high point of Wimbledon. So I'm, I'm right in on this. Even though I feel it's more of a comeback story than an unlikely winner, but they both rolled into one. I'm giving him a full on nine. Oh, yeah. I'm going to go right one below you and eight because it is a great story. Mm. It is a lovely story. Make it a film, that's what I say. Make all of these into films. <laughs> um, as Mark said during that, there will be more of these. This is all going to be a big old um, article on the website, so make sure you check out the website, which Mark is? Shockgiraffe.com forward slash Good Time Sports Club. 
Thank you very much for being part of another Good Time Sports Club. Ray, it's been lovely as always. As always, yes. Hopefully next week you can tell us all about your sporting prowess over this 500 mile race. No, I'll be doing it just the day before we leave. But my, I've, I've ordered my uh, my bikepacking bags late. So I'm hoping Uh-oh. they can turn up. Otherwise, literally, I'm going to have my clothes and my tent tied to my bike in plastic carrier bags. As it's looking right now if these bags don't turn up. But you never know. That's the joy of it. Uh, the Good Time Sports Club is a Shock Giraffe production. was presented by me, OJ Borge. And me, Raya Hubble. And a very special thanks to our guests, Lawrence Lemieux and Sophie Carrigal today. Indeed. The show is produced by Mark Payne with additional production support from James Watkins. We'll see you next week. Goodbye, Raya. Take care.